0: and welcome to Syria Week Conversations. Uh, Today I'm joined with Saad Rahim of Trafigura and Jeff Curie of uh, Goldman Sachs. We're going to talk about the energy transition and the oil market. So two two of the best to talk about these topics with. Uh, Jeff, let's kick it off with you. The last year, really since the greatest economic disruption since World War II, we've seen a number of countries increase their aspirations to decarbonize. Why is that, and how deep are these roots? Well, clearly there's been weather events. They were leading up to
1: it before COVID, but that's not the core reason. The core reason is you had a major um, economic dislocation um, that required substantial redistribution policies to lower income groups, Um, and as a result, governments needed to spend and spend big. And what would be the number one priority to um, create direct that spending? It would be decarbonization. So as a result, you ended up with this public-private partnership focused on decarbonization. I want to emphasize that the U.S. has a long history of doing this. What did FDR do during the Great Depression? TVA, um, Hoover Dam. What are those? Hydroelectric dams are green CapEx to deal with redistribution problems such as income and wealth inequality. So, you know, there's a playbook for doing this. And that's what I would argue is
0: got us here this quickly. And Saad, when you look at this question, you look at the United States from the Trump administration to Biden, do you think these aspirations that have been coming from the U.S., are they going to hold for beyond the next four years?
2: Well, look, I think a lot of it is going to depend on how the political landscape obviously shapes out even after the midterms next year. Um, but certainly the pieces that are being put in place with a couple of the big packages that are that are moving through Congress right now, I think if those do go ahead, you know, those do become law and, and you know some of these uh, kind of the big government programs as they come out, then then they do tend to be very sticky. Um, and you know, and really, I think as as kind of Jeff is alluding to, you know, it goes back to the Obama administration's never let a crisis go to waste, right? Um, and that feels to be a little bit of what's happening here. And I think once some of these projects, once some of these, the, you know, the, the the spending starts to go out, and to be also fair, I think once the automakers start to retool some of their their assembly lines, they really start to shift their investment dollars into new um, vehicle technology. That's a ship that pretty much will have sailed. Then you know, even if you're saying, okay, in four years, will this maybe potentially turn back. Um, and look, I do think that there is increasing sort of support on both sides of the aisle for at least some of these parts of the packages, maybe not quite as far as, you know, maybe the Democrats want to go, um, you know, on the Republican side, but certainly I think there is that building momentum and we are we are seeing that. So, I do think some of this remains pretty sticky.
0: So, let's talk about uh, EVs. We've seen EV aspirations increase. Um, you know, we're amidst the biggest changes in the automotive industry in more than 100 years are happening right now. We're at the beginning of it. In terms of EV side, you know, Europe, China, the U.S., the big auto markets, they have these aspirations. How, are they going to be met? Is it going to be a bumpy road? How do you see that?
2: Um, I mean, I think it depends on the jurisdiction. I mean, I think China has shown that you can, you know, really take very sort of uh, quick strides in, in getting, you know, EV sales up. Of course, it's one of these where you're starting from a low base, so your percentage growth always looks very phenomenal on, on the back of some of this. Um, but, you know, some of the targets I think will come down to are, again, will you be able to get the automotive companies, will, there, will, will their assembly lines, their technology, will all that be in a way that, that allows them to do that? But I think a lot of it also comes down to costs, right? EVs are great um, for certain segments of the population, but as you're still at this point where the drivetrain for a lot of these, these EVs still costs more than the average sort of, you know, uh, internal combustion engine uh, vehicle costs in, in its entirety, right? So that's where a lot of the growth has to come, has to be in bringing those battery costs down, finding what the best technology mix is for that. Um, and then really it's a, it's a question which we can come on to, but about deliverability of the, the kind of the key uh, components of that, especially along the metals chain, right? Um, and it's not just some of the more sort of uh, – you know, metals that people maybe haven't, haven't discussed as much like cobalt, but it really comes down to things like copper, nickel, and the, and the deliverability around some of that as well. So uh, I think, yes, you could see some of these, you know, definitely I, I think ambitious targets maybe being met in some of the jurisdictions. Maybe in Europe it's a little bit easier building out the infrastructure, you know, where you have, I think, where, where people are a little bit more concentrated. But in the U.S., again, a lot of it will depend maybe on state-by-state state even level, right, and say, okay, are we going to be able to build enough charging points? Are we going to be able to, to build that infrastructure out?
0: Jeff, what's your take on EVs? There's a lot of enthusiasm right now. Are people going to be disappointed? Or are there are these ambitions going to be realized?
1: I, I think I'm, I'm going to go back and answer it along with that question about how sticky it is this.
0: This is really sticky.
1: And again, I like to point out may this may have started three or four years ago, um, focused on environmental issues. But environmental issues really are not at play here. Um, you know, my answer at the beginning was hey, this creates job and deals with redistribution and wealth and income inequality. But let's also remember we had a trade war going on or a semi, call it cold war going on between the US and China. Now think about this. If you know the world's gonna decarbonize, which we probably can make that assumption at this point right now, and if you want to be the world superpower, you better get there first and you better control the technologies. And you heard Biden coming out and saying, I want to spend $147 billion on EV technologies. Why? To get ahead of the Chinese. And what are the Chinese doing? Pouring billions and billions in this. So if the US Soviet Cold War was characterized by an arms race and a race to the moon, You can argue that this Cold War between China and U.S. is going to be characterized as a decarbonization race, which means not only is it sticky, um, we're going to be throwing a lot of money. Now, let me ask you this. Do I think that this is efficient use of capital? Absolutely not. I mean, the world's upside down right now. You have this whole ESG movement where investors want to be policymakers through ESG. And what do the lawmakers and policymakers want to be? Investors. Um, which means you're likely to get a misallocation of capital, which means, it, yeah, it, we're going to see it. How effective it's going to be is a big question mark.
0: But Jeff and Saad, you know, the EV aspirations, you know, they they uh, depend a lot on the battery supply chain. And you look at just about any estimate of EV sales, it implies a staggering increase in the supply of battery materials and manufacturing capacity. China has the leading position today right now. What are the, the weak links, or the strong links that you see in the battery supply chain. And is that a big problem for the US and Europe as they try to achieve their EV ambitions? Jeff, how would you start off? Well, we we like to focus
1: on the big six metals. Um, Copper is obviously king, followed by aluminum, nickel, um, silver lithium and cobalt those are the big six metals that are going to be focused on this electrification of the world now the one that we see you know the most upside and the one that's likely to get ridiculously tight tighter than what oil got during the 2000s is copper why because you cannot electrify the world without copper um, given the restrictions around physics and what makes this different than oil in the 2000s At least in oil, one, we'd seen demand destruction before in the 70s. And two, we knew shale was out there. It was a $125 barrel proposition in 2005, but we knew it existed. Um, Copper, we've never really seen demand destruction. A little bit in 68 when we reached the all-time real high price. Um, But in terms of technologies out there, you got some of these graphene technologies, but they're still test tubes. Um, So we don't have the equivalent of shale, which means the upside potential here um, could be absolutely massive because now the most strategically important commodity is going to be copper, not oil.
0: Saad, battery supply chain opportunities, challenges. How do you see it?
2: No, absolutely. I mean, I I would agree with exactly that, where for copper, copper is the thing you substitute to, you know, away from uh, everything else that we're looking at. We're talking about, you know, oil and coal and everything else because you're going to need increased electrification it's within the EVs, it's within, you know, uh, itself. So you're, and you're looking at not just a slight increase, you're looking at four to five times increase, depending on whether you're talking about versus thermal power versus internal combustion engines versus EVs, you know, so it's a a huge step change. And really, I think as Jeff is alluding to also, I mean, the, the, the investment timeline, the cycle for this you know for oil it's actually gotten shorter right with the advent of shale um with some of the advances in technology but with copper it's going the other way right so the average project now is taking you seven to ten years rather than the sort of five years it used to you know before um and the point here is, i think we're going to see is as that pie becomes bigger as the price goes up as the demand goes up you're going to see more people wanting a bigger piece of a bigger pie Right, and you're going to see sort of um, pinch points along the whole supply chain where you're already seeing it with labor unions at mines, but then local communities are going to want a larger share. Governments are going to want a larger fiscal take. If you look at what's happening in just Peru and Chile, potentially two of the largest producers of copper, you know, this has the potential to really set back what is already a very constrained supply picture even further. Right? Um, you know, I mean, uh, and. You know, this is not the equivalent of Saudi Arabia. Maybe the U.S. saying, "Okay, well, we're going to change the tax take on on oil production in in the U.S. completely." Uh, you know, and that suddenly knocks out one of the three largest producers, you know, um, from the supply picture. So it's a very it's a very potentially challenging picture. Beyond that, one of the other ones we talk a lot about is also on the nickel side, right? Because in a traditional battery, or the the one that we've been looking at, you have nickel, cobalt, and manganese in sort of the one-to-one ratio of those three you've been trying to reduce the amount of cobalt given the supply concentration that you have um in the drc and then also from from the china side Uh, and you're then increasing the amount of nickel but even there you're saying the amount of nickel that we need to bring on is going to be a a massive uh, leap from where we are today and again we don't have that investment in place so from a global supply chain perspective you're saying where are the incentives to really to to bring, you know, to accelerate all this and to bring it up um, much more quickly. And that, I think to me, may be the more challenging aspect of some of the deliverability goals on the on the EV side that we're talking about, right? Where people are saying, okay, we want to make half of all EV sa- of all vehicle sales in 2030 EV. Okay, but that's great, but you may be lacking some of the critical materials you need to get there.
0: So uh, Saad and Jeff, if you're an oil company, you're looking at the oil industry, you see all these policies, every major consuming market, has policies that are focused on consuming less of what you produce. What are the are there other other opportunities for oil companies, or is it just about lowering costs to be the most efficient they can be? Are there other opportunities in this energy transition? Uh, Saad, let's keep with you first, and then Jeff.
2: Um, I mean, I think we are seeing some of the. You know, uh, as you say, I think there's a lot to be gained. Still, out of out of. You know, cost savings, but we are seeing, I think, a pretty disparate response between the European majors, for example, and the, U- and the U.S. companies, right? So the European companies really are pivoting, I'd say, very, very, you know, decisively towards renewable generation, um, you know, and say like basically our upstream earnings are going to finance our transition to, into becoming renewable companies, right? Whereas in the U.S., you aren't seeing that, or at least if you're seeing it, it's, it's, it's more in the, the talk rather than actually you know, what's happening in terms of investments um, in, the, in the ground. But what's interesting, I think to me, and, and we can talk a little bit more about this, but is the fact that, you know, again, we, we are, we're not suddenly gonna drop from 100 million barrels a day of oil demand to 50 to 20. We are, you know, it is, even if we're at or near peak demand, you're still going to need to produce in excess of, you know, 80 to 90 million barrels a day for the next decade, and you just haven't seen, I think the commensurate investment to actually be able to deliver that. It's not that the oil isn't there, it's, it's not a peak supply issue as much as a peak deliverability issue. And that may actually be the thing that comes up before peak demand, right? Is is in the next couple of years, and, and you know again, Goldman um, and others have done some great work on this, but showing just that, you know because of this lack of investment, we are taking millions of barrels of supply out of the market um, at a time when you need it, right? Because everyone is looking at it, today's supply, you know, sort of a demand picture and then saying EVs, and then bringing these two points together without saying, well, what happens in the interim, right? And the whole point is, it is a transition. Um, it's not a transformation, and and yet we're not seeing that, right? We're not seeing the investment dollars go in to support that uh, that that you know the, the industry that still is going to be very vital for this. And I would worry that the the, the the without that investment, you're going to see prices that are much much higher and actually cannibalize dollars that would be going into the energy transition in other places because as a global economy, you can't afford to be spending that much there if your oil bill is, is effectively too hot, right? So I think it becomes a very interesting question what happens.
0: Jeff, what are your thoughts on this?
1: Let's uh, split investment into long cycle and short cycle. Um, you know, long cycle's dead. You don't wanna be putting money into deep water offshore platforms in Angola and Nigeria. That's why those two countries can't even hit their OPEC quota targets right now. Um, where do you want to see the investment go into short cycle? Where is short cycle? US shale, Russia, and the Middle East. Those are going to be the three big areas where you should see substantial investment um, going forward. Um, and I want to emphasize too that if you look at all pariah commodities, um, let's start with tobacco, the price has gone higher and higher. And you look at, you know, you know Philip Morris, you know, was turned into a cash cow. Um, so there are opportunities, and Philip Morris ended up being a great investment. Um, you, know, you know, and then you look at coal, um, because you end up with a substantial underinvestment. So it's so even if demand rolls over, it doesn't mean this is going to be a bad space to invest in. And for those that are skeptical, just take a look at tobacco. Um, now, in terms of, of thinking about what happens to people and the assets and so forth, You know, I like to point out, you know, the metals companies are going to have to do something they've never done before. They're going to have to act like oil companies. They're going to have to go into Africa. You know, as Saad pointed out, you know, these reserves are in places like the DRC. And what did companies like Total and, and, you know, Shell and BP do really well? They were experts at going into hostile um, environments um, with very sophisticated technologies and extracting these resources. Um, you know, these metals companies, for the most part, have been in Australia and Brazil in their backyards um, going after iron ore. And the game is going to be changed. And the one thing the oil companies have is that expertise to do that type of investment. So, yeah, you know, I would see an opportunity there. Now, in terms of, you know, thinking about that, I do want to emphasize, um, you know, even though demand may roll, roll over, um, there's still significant investment opportunities here.
0: By the way, it's uh, to- Allude to your comments there, Jeff inside, you know, coal prices last month were at their highest level uh, since 2008. That's cool. So let's move to uh, oil uh, and the the near term, the short term. So uh, last month I went on a five thousand two hundred mile road trip across the United States. and If there is any doubt about the reopening in the U.S., it was very vivid hotels, full (laughs) roads, full. It was amazing. Uh, but since then, you know, Delta cases have increased in the U.S. You know, China's had some issues, Southeast Asia. Uh, Jeff, how has the Delta variant, the spread of it, has it impacted your oil market view, you know, in the near term?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We just fact a day or two ago, we just took down our demand forecast for the next two months, a million barrels per day. But I want to emphasize that's still a speed pump. It's transient. Um, And when we think about supply, you know, the underinvestment in, um, let's say, shale, uh, U.S. is likely to decline now. So there's these offsetting supply factors. So while we have taken down demand by a million barrels per day for two two months, which is, you know, six, seven hundred thousand barrels per day over a quarter, while you've lost three hundred and fifty thousand barrels per day of supply, here's the key point. The supply losses are persistent. The demand losses are transient. And so, over time, the supply issues become more important. And what we like to argue—that's happening to the market as we speak today—we're transitioning from a demand-driven market over the, since, so let's say, last October to now. Um, it was demand-driven. Now it's going to be supply-driven. And just kind of put it in perspective: you go back to last, you know, April, maybe demand troughed at somewhere around 75 billion barrels per day. Um, in terms of where are we today? We're at like 98.5. We think it's going to drop to 97.8. It's not, you know, let's look at it in the grand schemes. It is truly a speed bump. It doesn't change. That big demand ramp up over the last, let's say, 12 months was key. Um, What's important
2: going forward are the supply issues.
0: Uh, Saad, have you seen demand soften because of Delta?
2: I mean, again, I think in certain key areas, I think absolutely in Southeast Asia, we have seen that. Um, and a few other locations. But I think if you look at you know, India, for example, uh, Indian demand has come back very, very strongly. Um, and even now Brazil as well, you know, the places that, that had seen sort of real crisis around the virus that, you know, coming out of it and coming out of it very, very quickly, right? Um, so I expect probably Southeast Asia to come back. China certainly has been an issue because of the, some of the lockdowns that they've had um, recently. Uh, but again, I think as Jeff says, those are, those are more transitory than they are, than they are structural, right? Um, and elsewhere, we are seeing demand that is at, at very, very strong levels. And you know, as you say, in the U.S., uh, you know, you contributed a bit to, it, but it's, you hit a record all the time, right? About 10 million barrels a day of gasoline demand. Um, and to me, that that feels like that is very, you know, that that, that is persistent, that that is here to stay. And that's before we start to get people really going back to work, school runs, you know, all those things starting to come back up in September. So we may not see quite that drop off when when we come out of it. Um, but you know, and then on the supply side, you know, what we're saying is look, the U.S. has not grown production over the last year, right? So oil prices are 100% higher than they were last October, and yet oil production in the U.S. is about the same at about 11, 11 11.2 million barrels a day, right? And that is not supply, supply that will come back relatively quickly, but it's not coming back on tomorrow. Um, So in addition to what OPEC is out of the market, that's there, Iran, which I think people thought in June, as early as June was gonna add maybe another million barrels a day, Uh, of of supplies back into the market maybe more you know that now has been pushed back quite significantly and as of now you know even if you get a deal today you're not going to load those barrels for september you know so that that is now pushed further and further out um and that may now come back uh and then and to go back to something jeff said earlier about nigeria angola you know there are a lot of these producers you know i was i was talking about so angola mexico vietnam colombia you know some of these smaller producers i just look at those four and those are a million and a half barrels a day down over the last couple of years And those are barrels that are gone, right? That that, that is, you know, you really need substantial investment to come in to get that picture turned around. And we're not seeing that for a lot of the reasons we've discussed. So to me, um, you know, yes, I think Delta has had an impact. I think one of the things that we're seeing is uh, if you look at some of the high frequency data, you know, like open table dining reservations, what you're seeing is real regional disparities in particular in the US, right? But elsewhere as well, where the us as a whole is actually back to and maybe slightly above the levels you were in 2019 but that's being driven by houston dallas miami you know these places whereas new york and la are still substantially below right so even places that have high vaccination rates there's still some self-selecting going on about you know not wanting to go out or not wanting to travel maybe as much as 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 elsewhere so we're still waiting for that to recover but when that does and that will as you know as we move through you know, continue to move and make make progress on um, uh, on the virus front, you know, then that is just going to add layer upon layer of
0: demand, I think, as we go forward. So let's go beyond the the short term. And, you know, the pandemic has reordered priorities and values, at least for some. How has it altered, uh, Saad, we'll start with you, your perspective of the oil market three, four, five years from now?
2: I think it's a very interesting question. It's one you know again we we've kind of talked here today, right? But when people talk about the energy transition, I think they're lumping together in many ways power generation and you know and, and sort of attacking that problem with the with the road transport side of it, right? And saying okay, so all of this is now going to be accelerating, all of this is going to start happening. And while I do definitely you see it very much on the on the power gen side, and yes EVs are you know are taking off, but I think you know that the point about demand growth has still not gone away. So a lot of the structural drivers that we're still seeing, you know, in particular in emerging markets, increased urbanization, increased income growth, you know, the um, population growth, all these things still matter very much to oil demand, right? And in a lot of places where we've always expected the demand growth to be coming over the next few years, right? um, Whether it is Southeast Asia, India, Middle East, Africa, you know, sort of the demographic wave that goes through all these places, you know, those are places where it is going to be very, very challenging to build out, uh, first of all, even the the, the grid that you need, um, but then let alone the charging infrastructure. If you think about the challenges that we face in the US, Europe, um, you know, in, in places that have the capital and the desire to do so, to actually build that out, I think it's gonna be pretty challenging for a lot of these places, right? And so structurally, you know, are we still seeing demand growth? And I would say, yes. And I think, but you know, yet we have, we're faced with this narrative that we have somehow fallen off of a cliff, and that you know the the demand is suddenly going to start evaporating, and I just don't think we're there.
0: Jeff, any long term repercussions on oil from the pandemic?
1: Game changer.
0: Um, why?
1: Um, the pandemic was a crisis of inequality. It may have started out as a health care crisis, but it morphed into a um, you know an epic social crisis, and at the core, it exposed in a very raw form, inequalities, wealth inequalities, income inequalities, race inequalities, age inequalities, you pick your inequality. And what that did is it forced policymakers to um, focus on social need. And that's very different. Before, after the, the, the financial crisis, policy was focused on financial stability, take the risk out of the system. Now it's entirely focused on social need. Case in point, yesterday or the day before yesterday, Congress just passed a add to the, you know, the budget $3.5 trillion for social need on top of the one was at 1.2 trillion um, you know, infrastructure bill. Um, so now when we think about this policy driven structural rise in demand, it is global. It's not unique to the US. Every single government in the world is focused on social need because, you know, these inequalities, whether it's wealth inequality, inequality, are rearing their uh, ugly head everywhere. Now, here's why it's an absolute game changer, I think, even for potential inflationary pressures, is when we do oil balances, how do we determine if we're bullish oil? We look at the volume of demand versus the volume of supply. The volume of demand is by the volume of supply. We're bullish. How do you get along a financial market? Volumes don't enter. It's just how much money you pump into them. Now, let me ask you this. What do the world's rich control? Wealth and income. Can they create bull markets in financial assets and growth in GDP? Absolutely, yes. Now, let me ask you this. Can the world's rich create a bull market in oil, commodities, or any physical goods? Numerically impossible. There's not enough of them. Only the world's low-income groups can create bull markets in physical assets like oil and other commodities. And what are we doing? We're stimulating the world's low-income groups everywhere in the world at the exact same time. I mean, it's that case in point. So I just said, record US um, gasoline demand. I think we're going to continue to see very strong demand across all of these commodities. And there are three policies that we're focused on. We call it revving commodity demand redistributional policies, like what we saw this week with that $3.5 trillion um, budget surplus, um, environmental policies, um, like we were talking about, that's the, uh, the R is redistribution, um, E is environmental, and then V, versatility and supply chain initiatives, that's your cold war between um, US and China. And we think these are gonna be the core drivers behind a structural rise in oil and commodity demand um, going forward. Now, the question is, it clearly, you know, you know, it's bullish copper, but how bullish it is oil. I'm very comfortable being bullish oil, at least until 2024.
0: Let's wrap up our conversation by talking about the big three oil producers, the U.S., Russia, and Saudi Arabia. And Jeff, first, uh, you know, the U.S. was the big, U.S. upstream industry was the biggest disruptive force in the last decade, upended the world oil order as we knew it. Now we have this era of production, of capital discipline, is that going to hold how do you see the future of u.s production growth
1: a very near term um you know it's going to hold i mean it's very clear coming out of this earnings season they're doing share buybacks and they're um increasing you know these variable dividends they're making it clear they're not going to put money back in the ground i think it's a key point here for all of us in this industry it's been a miserable 10 years um even for the, that gangbuster area for the shale um, for all of us in commodities, even though you had the growth, it wasn't great returns. So it's been a very difficult environment. Investors are demanding their money back, and they're not going to come back until they see a string of very good returns and you know, good cash flow management. i like to point out in the bull market in the 2000s, it started in 003. You didn't get the CapEx boom until '06, and in metals, it didn't come until 08 So it's going to come. Um, the question is, at what price, what hurdle rate? That's still uncertainty. I don't think it's going to come you know, at
0: least gangbusters in the next year or two. Saad, your thoughts, U.S. production?
2: No, I'd agree with that. I mean, you know, um, I think as Jeff was saying, you know, effectively that, that industry has been taking dollars and turning it into oil, and not very efficiently in many cases, right? And the, that there's been quite a bit of loss along the way. So the question becomes, you know, we are seeing private players are coming out and they're starting to increase rigs and all of that. Um, but really when we look at the majors and in particular, in the kind of the big shale independents, they are not, right? And they are very focused on, on shareholder returns. And I think also when you look at the back end of the curve and they're saying, okay, if I start, you know, at least with shale is a shorter time frame. but if I'm the majors and I'm saying, okay, you know, looking a few years out, that curve is still $60 maybe even below once you get past 2023, right? So if I'm bringing out a project that is gonna cost in that region, you know, how, how certain am I of that before I embark on that, right? Um, and, uh, and i think uh, where we will see you know right now is rigs are coming up but you're basically at maintenance levels right you really need to see capex budgets really start to turn around the next couple of months in order to be able to deploy for next year and then start to have that come back up but companies right now aren't aren't willing to do that whereas i think if you look at it then you say okay who's who's saying well again back in the driver's seat really it's again to come back to saudi and russia right um And who can actually then really materially increase production and that's what you're saying is okay saudi saying all of a sudden now we're going to increase capacity by a million maybe more uh and they have then the kind of the political wherewithal and the capital access to be able to do that which is not always the case in in, in, you know at least in the us right now right so while you're getting incremental gains there i think to really just i mean look as we said earlier just to get back to where you were pre-pandemic is a 2 million barrel a day increase. That is a lot of capex that needs to happen, right? A lot of rigs that need to come back on. You're still below 400 rigs. You need to get back up to somewhere between 600 and 800 in order to get back to those levels. And that you're a long, long, long way away from that, right? So I think we're, we're, we'll see the capacity is gonna be in back in, in, in Saudi and Russia.
0: So we've seen a big demand spike uh, this year, supply management increasingly important, always been important, but perhaps even more so in the year ahead. Jeff, what keeps Saudi and Russia together? Are they going to stay together in this partnership?
1: Um, I would argue probably unlikely in the long term because they have very different goals. Um, you know, but I th- also, I think more immediately is just the difference in investment. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia is making very aggressive plans in terms of growing production. If we think about if there's just three producers you know, that have short cycle production, US, um, Middle East, and Russia, that's where you're going to see the investment. Those are going to be your three big players. I don't think you need much supply side management when all the other players are dropping off. And that's kind of the core reason why in the long run, it just really doesn't make that much sense, um, because the three are just going to have to go full steam ahead to be able to keep up with them and over at least the next you know three to five years.
0: Saud Saudi Russia?
2: Uh, again, I, I would agree with generally what Jeff is saying, but I think where, because in Russia, you do have, you know, a variety of the basically companies, right, who are then pushing the government to really say, look, this is more about volume than it is necessarily price for us, given given where taxation kicks in, right? So they're always going to be pushing for higher volume, whereas for Saudi Inc, in a sense, right, it is much more, again, about market management overall, right? And I think that's where we see where, um, you know, the ability to dial up, dial down, which is not always the case elsewhere, right I think that's Saudi's true strategic advantage and gives them the kind of as Jeff says a very different strategic outlook on on what they're trying to achieve and and their management of it um, you know and also the again, the historical sort of relationship with with the u s you know that has frayed over the last few years, but again that has been something that is in their mind that is you know tends to be important at various times, so they will respond to calls potentially you know we've seen in the past where okay we need we need to to increase production. You, know, you saw the headlines the last couple of days, um, and that is something that they at least had to take into consideration, whereas I think in a way that maybe Russia doesn't, right? Um, and so I think, I think ultimately there will be a divergence of these strategic aims um, and in their, in their market management philosophies, but for now they're sort of you know, happy to be kind of co-passengers um, going along the same way.
0: Assad and Jeff, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and insights on the energy transition and oil, found it very, very, very valuable. So thank you for your time. And everyone watching, thank you for joining us on Sierra Week Conversations.